We're looking at the book of Hebrews, and last week we stopped, I believe, at Hebrews 2, about verse 15, and we learned then that through Christ's death, through His sacrifice on the cross, verse 15, He's able to deliver us from our bondage or our slavery of the fear of death. Verse 16, For verily He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham. Now that would have been a very important statement uh, being written to Christians who had converted from their Judaism. Uh, They're placing a lot of emphasis, of course, on the prophets, on Moses, on Abraham. Point in verse 16, if you really want to get close to God, you need to recognize that it's Christians who are of the seed of Abraham. So they had said in the past, the Jews had said in the past that they were children of Abraham, and Abraham is their father. Point of verse 16 is that Christians are those who are the seed of Abraham. Verse 17, In all things it behooved him, that is Christ, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, not in physical things like the Old Testament priest so much, as now Christ is a high priest, verse 17, in things pertaining to God. And uh, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. I don't remember right now what some translations may say other than reconciliation for the sins of the people. Reconciliation here is a good translation. I think some may say propitiation or something like that. Uh, The idea though is satisfaction, propitiation, satisfaction. Think of you've got a conflict because of your sin. You have a conflict between you and God. Uh, caused by the sin and reconciliation or even propitiation has the idea of satisfying this conflict now and bringing the two uh, opposing parties back together. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's now able, verse 18, to comfort those who are tempted. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 1 though, and don't overlook how this starts out. In chapter 3 and verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, that's an important phrase. If you read the book of Hebrews very much at all, you've seen a number of times the book of Hebrews totally destroys the whole doctrine of eternal security. Uh, that is, once saved, always saved. You know, once a person is saved from his sins, some will teach it's impossible to ever again sin in such a way to be lost in your sin. I mean, that's, that's the doctrine of once saved, always saved, the perseverance of the saints, or eternal security, you'll hear it called different things. But literally, it's impossible for someone who's been saved to ever again be lost. Now the book of Hebrews just totally destroys that doctrine. It talks here about departing from the living God. You can't depart from somewhere you've never been. Uh, But there are a number of phrases that tell us Hebrews is written to Christians. Now that's important because the book of Hebrews puts an end to the doctrine of once saved, always saved, or eternal security. And so those people who believe that doctrine uh, approach Hebrews by saying, well, the book of Hebrews isn't really written to Christians. It was written to people who, uh, Jews who almost became Christians. And so when the writer talks about falling short of that rest being heaven itself, they want to basically mean that falling short of being a Christian. They were almost, but not quite, you see. And they never really 
obeyed the gospel, and they never became Christians. And so that's the argument, is simply to say, well, this book wasn't written to Christians. Uh, it, it defeats once saved, always saved, some would say, and I, I would say that, that's what the book does, but some would say, well, it's not ever written to Christians anyway, so it doesn't really answer that doctrine at all. But you find here in the book a number of times, one of these is right here in chapter 3 and verse 1, wherefore, holy brethren, these are brethren, not physical brethren, they're not just physical Jews here and they're brethren in that way, He's telling them, wherefore, they're holy brethren, and they are partakers of the heavenly calling. So, uh, again, a number of times in Hebrews we see that the book is written to Christians, but I know I've said that already, but I think it's still worth, I I know we said that in the introduction to the book, but I think it's still worth repeating and emphasizing, uh, because it does, uh, again, answer this whole idea of once saved, always saved. So he said, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Well, I'm not sure if there are other times. I think this might be, I know it's one of the few times. It might be the only time in the Bible. I'm not sure where Christ is referred to here as an apostle. And, of course, he's our high priest. He's still serving as our high priest today, and he is an apostle. And that might seem like an odd thing to call Christ an apostle, but keep in mind he's not an apostle in the way that the twelve were apostles, or actually fourteen, I suppose. Uh, but the idea here, the word apostle just means one who sent. Christ sent the apostles out. And Christ is one who is sent as well by God. And so he's saying, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him that appointed him. That is, Christ now is faithful to God just as Moses was faithful in all his house. Verse 3, Now, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. See, they're they're putting this emphasis on Moses, and so far the book's been trying to teach us that uh, Christ is better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, and here he's better than Moses. Uh, This man, now Christ, verse 3, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house is more honored than the house. Doesn't that make sense? You're going to uh, honor the one who built it, not the house itself. Now verse 4, For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. This is actually often used, this verse 4 is often used to support uh, creation and as evidence of creation. And I think this verse does that. It's simply saying every house is built by some man. Somebody had to build it. I mean, this house didn't just you know, pop up overnight on its own. Somebody had to build it. And when you see a house or something like this building we're in now, you realize somebody built it. It didn't just happen by itself. Every house is built by some man, verse 4, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. 6 now in verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house. You see the contrast he's making now between Moses and Christ. And Moses was faithful in all his house, verse 5, as a servant. But Christ wasn't just faithful in his house, but Christ as a son, not a servant now, but a son, and he was over his own house. Whose house are we? Now, who's, who's the house of God today? It's Christians. It's not people who came close to being Christians but fell short. 
it's Christians. So when he says in verse 6, whose house we are, obviously, again, he's writing to Christians, is he not? But he also says in verse 6, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. See, we, if, small word, right? Two letters, but such big meaning. And it's, it's, uh, it lays forth such big contingencies here. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope now, firm unto the end. He's talking about just stay faithful, persevere, endure. Wherefore, verse 7, as the Holy Ghost said today, if you will hear his voice. Wherefore now, in light of what he's been saying about Moses and Christ, and Christ is better than Moses. Wherefore, verse 7, I believe you could read that therefore as well if you wanted to. As the Holy Spirit saith, and that's actually present tense, as the Holy Spirit is even saying today and speaking today. If, verse 7, he says, if you will hear his voice. And some will hear, some will not. But he says now in verse 8, if you'll hear the Holy Spirit, he's saying today even, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. No doubt he's referring here to the time in the wilderness, the 40 years in the wilderness, when God's people had provoked him and tested him because of their lack of faith and their complaining and their questioning God and their questioning Moses. And so he refers this now as uh, provocation in the days of temptation in the wilderness. Verse 9, he said, When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. See, why is he saying this? And actually, I think that's uh, the end in verse 7. After we're four in verse 7, verse 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 actually are like a parenthetical expression. Most of your Bibles are probably going to have parentheses there. It's a parenthetical expression. Now, it's in there by the writers. It's part of the text. It's not an addition. But it, it's, it's almost like a side thought or a side note. And so that's important. We don't want to leave it out. But at the same time, it's a parenthetical expression, somewhat of a side note here. So you could also read verse 7 if you wanted to. Um, uh, wherefore, in verse 7, and then go to verse 12. Wherefore, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. See, you can't depart from somewhere you've never been. You can't depart from God if they never had this relationship with God. But go back for just a minute now. Uh, uh, wherefore, I was grieved, verse 10. Wherefore, I was grieved. See, God is grieved. What does grieve mean? The ideal is somebody's grieving. It could be uh, mourning over somebody's death. Perhaps they're grieving. They're going through this mourning process. But basically, they're saddened. And God is saddened here. Uh, verse 10, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation. He was disappointed in them, and he was saddened them, saddened by them as he watched their behavior. Same thing can happen today. We can cause God grief, can we not? Uh, we can cause God to be saddened by our behavior. But the point I wanted to look at in verse 10, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err, in their heart. Well, that's where it starts, doesn't it? In their heart. But then he says, and they have not known my ways. Does that sound familiar to you? God, they're being rebuked here 
And verse 10, God is grieved with that generation. And God is saying they're, they're living in error. They do always earn their heart. Always, uh, earn their, they do always earn their heart. I'm sorry. They earn their heart. They're living in this error. And then in verse 10, he says, they have not known my ways. I can't help but read that and think of Isaiah 55, 8, 7, 8, and 9. And what do we read in Isaiah 55, 7, and 8, and 9? Again, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, your ways. And how often that is explained. See, God is just so much higher than us, we never understand His ways. That's not what Isaiah means. The point in Isaiah, when he says, my ways are not your ways, he's saying, you have not made my ways your ways. He's rebuking them. He said, you haven't made my thoughts your thoughts. Uh, to a large degree, we can know God's thoughts, and we can know God's ways. And here, in fact, he's, in, he's rebuking them in verse 10. He said, they have not known my ways. So it's possible to know God's ways and thought. How, how does God want you to live, you see? Uh, how does God want us to, to interact with others? How does God want us, for that matter, to interact with God? See, don't, that's all part of His ways, and He's revealed that to us. So verse 11, then, He says, So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Why is He telling them all of this here? Why is He going back and 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 talking about these people and they're wandering in the wilderness. And, and, and so he says in verse 11, I swear in my wrath. See, God can become angry. We can make God angry with our behavior. And he says, because of that, because they provoked me, they tempted me, they didn't know my ways, they shall not enter into my rest. And his point here, I believe, in verse 7, 8, 9, and 11 is simply that when we go back and study the Israelites and they're wandering in the wilderness, they had been delivered from their Egyptian bondage. But just because they had been delivered from their Egyptian bondage was no guarantee that they would reach the land of Canaan. Just because they had been delivered from their bondage was no guarantee that they were going to enjoy the, the rest that God promised them in Canaan. They still had to uh, be faithful, did they not? They still had to, to live a certain way and notice because of their hearts. When we talk about living a certain way, it's not a matter of outward uh, behavior. I mean, that outward behavior may be important, but a person can change their outward behavior and not really have this change of heart. And that's what he's telling them in verse 8, and harden not your hearts as well. And... Um, Again, verse 10, they do all we are in their heart. And they have not known my ways, and they shall not enter into my rest. Just because they were freed from their Egyptian bondage was no guarantee that they were going to enter into God's rest. And he's telling them this now, because remember, he's writing to Christians who had converted from Judaism, were being tempted to go back into Judaism, and he says, listen, just because you've been freed from your bondage of sin now by becoming a Christian... That's no guarantee that you're going to reach this rest. And you're certainly not going to reach it if you turn back. That's what he tells them later in the chapter. If you turn back, I know you're not going to reach it then. But you, it's not a guarantee that you're going to reach the rest. You still have to stay faithful to God and, and, and be faithful to Him and endure it till the end. And stay. look at verse 6. He said, and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. 
You started the race, but you haven't finished it yet. And so he's telling them, keep on, keep on now. Now in verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called a day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14 together. And you'll find at least four ways, maybe more, I don't know, but you'll find in verses 12, 13, and 14 at least four ways to prevent apostasy. And that's what he's trying to do. That's what the writer's trying to do with the recipients here is prevent them from going back into Judaism. Try to prevent them from leaving Christ and leaving Christianity and going back into that. Now, there's a lesson for us in application. And, you know, every... Every chapter, we want to have some kind of take home, you know. What's this got to do with me today? How does this pertain to me today? I suppose this week from chapter 3, this is our take home, really, verses 12, 13, and 14. How does this apply to us today? It's important that we stay faithful. And he's got four ways here to keep us from going back and apostatizing and going back into the world. Verse 12, the first one is simply uh, to take heed. What does it mean to take heed? It means to pay attention. He's trying to get them to pay attention to what he said, uh, to what he has said. Today, we need to be paying attention to what uh, the prophets have said, but particularly we need to be paying attention to what Christ has said and what the apostles have said and what the inspired men are writing as they give us the New Testament. Pay attention. You know, sometimes... People may not even do well in school because they just have trouble paying attention. They may have a short attention span and, and, and they just can't pay attention. Well, if you know if you're not going to pay attention because you're distracted from other, by other things, you're not going to really retain the material. You're not going to know what's going on and what the lesson's all about. Sometimes today people get distracted. Isn't that what we learn among one of the many things we learn? In Matthew 13, when we study the parable of the sower, some, they, they heard, uh, but they didn't really last. You know, they kind of sprouted up and did all right for a while, I suppose. But then they were distracted by the cares of this world. And they didn't give attention to what things, the, the things that they needed to be giving attention to. And so first thing in verse 12 assembly is take heed. Pay attention to what God's told us. Pay attention to your soul. Pay attention to spiritual matters of life, you see. Give, it, give your soul the attention it deserves. What do you have in your possession, in your life, that deserves more attention than your soul? Listen up, he says. Take heed, verse 12. And again, he says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. This is interesting, isn't it, how he calls unbelief evil. Sometimes you might hear somebody say, we know he's, he's a good guy. He's just not a Christian, but he's a good guy. He's a good person. But yet in verse 12, when we're reading about unbelief, uh, it's described as, e as an evil heart. But also he says an evil heart of unbelief. Well, that tells me they can't be lost, can they not? Uh, and departing from the living God. So take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief 
in departing from the living God. Again, they're going to be lost if they do that, are they not? So there's your first thing in verse 12. Your, your first of four ways to prevent apostasy is take heed. Pay attention to the important things in life. Verse 13, exhort one another daily. Uh, exhort or encourage one another daily. Uh, you see this again in a place or two later in the book. Particularly you get to Hebrews 10 verse 25. Uh, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner, manner of some is. But what does he say? But exhort one another daily. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, when he says exhort one another daily, it's talking about encouragement. And my take on Hebrews 10.25, we'll get to it later, but my take on Hebrews 10.25 where he says, uh, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. What is the opposite of forsaking the assembly? The opposite would be to assemble. So he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, but exhort. And exhort is the opposite of Forsaking the assembly. So the point here is from verse 10, uh, 25 of chapter 10, I believe, is the encouragement or the exhortation is that which takes place at the assembly. Not that it's necessarily limited to that, but it is. And as you see the day approaching, and I'll just tell you now and get it way, way ahead of myself. I think the day of approaching there is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And could you see that day approaching? Could the Jews see that day? And that's why I said earlier on, I think in the introduction, I believe it was not only written to Christians who had converted from Judaism, but particularly to Christians living in Palestine. Because could they see the day approaching? They sure could. Go back and read Matthew, the 24th chapter. And when you see the signs, you know that the end is near. And in Matthew 24, the first half of the chapter, he's not talking there about the end of the world. He's talking, remember they asked him before then, uh, they're, they're almost boasting. You'll see this temple. See, you'll see all this, have the beauty of the temple. And he says, uh, you know, this will be torn down. And I'll raise again in three days. Now, he's talking about the temple of his body. But the fact is, Matthew 24, the first part of the chapter, is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, so I think that's the, I think that's the day they saw in Hebrews 10, 25. And they did see it in that they saw the Roman army coming. They saw Titus and his army surrounding the city. So they certainly they were able to see that. Take heed, chapter, uh, chapter 3, now verse 12. First of four ways to prevent apostasies. Take heed to pay attention. Second, exhort one another daily in verse 13. We really don't do that, do we? Do we? Maybe we do. Do we actually exhort? I'm not saying we don't encourage one another. I'm saying do we exhort one another Daily, we really don't do we on a day-to-day basis. Uh, maybe we probably ought to more than we do. You know, we got we had things during the week competing for our attention, don't we? And you know, you got things at work sometimes competing for your attention and drawing you away from uh, what's important, perhaps. And sometimes it's good to just have a have a little daily reminder: Hey, hang in there, hang in there. And so exhort or encourage one another daily. Now, whether you want to make a lot of emphasis on the daily or not, certainly it's true from verse 13, we can encourage one another, right? And so that's the second way, simply encourage one another. The third way is while it is called today. Simply the point of being here, I think, is exhort one another daily while you have time. 
while you have today, while it is called today. He says, realize the urgency of the situation. It's, it's urgent. I, I, I know this is a cliche. And I hear it a lot, and you hear it a lot, and I hope none of us hear it so much that it becomes meaningless to us. But it is a cliche, but it's still so true. There's just no guarantee of tomorrow. There's not. No guarantee of tomorrow, is there? Really, none of us know for certainty, for a fact, how this evening will end, do we? What will happen between now and the time that Wednesday is over in a few hours. We don't really know that for a fact. We kind of plan on it and expect it and think we do, but truth truth is we don't know. So I think here in verse 13, he's trying to get them to understand the urgency of the situation. Uh, Take heed while you have time to do that. Repent while you have time to do that. Get yourself in in a, a proper relationship with God while you have time to do that. Today, then, take advantage of this while it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, our hearts can be hardened and callous. Uh, that's, this is not one of the ways I'm talking about, one of the four things I'm mentioning here, but certainly it's true, isn't it? Our hearts can become callous and hardened. Man, we see so many crazy things about us. We see so many sinful things about us. And we see it almost on a daily basis. Is it possible that if you're not careful and you see that day after day after day after day after day after a while, you can become kind of insensitive to it? You maybe never really accept it, but maybe it doesn't bother you like it once did. You just got kind of hear, you're hearing it so much that you may allow your heart to become hardened. And notice also he says, verse 13, through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives. You know, there's a lot of sinful things in the world right now that a lot of people think are good and we should accept them. And in fact, they may tell you, you would accept them if you were loving, if you weren't so harsh, if you weren't so judgmental, if you were kind and cared and were loving and really wanted to accept people, you'd, you would be accepting these things as well. But that's just one way from verse 13 that sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. Sin may be pleasurable for a moment, but look at the consequences eventually at the long run. And Moses certainly understood that, did he not? Verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And that's really your fourth way to prevent apostasy is just understand the importance of enduring to the end. Hang in there. Stay with it. Don't quiv up. Don't don't give up. No, don't quit. Nobody has ever started a race and and quit and have they and been declared the winner when they quit when they dropped out of the race or they ran half of it and quit or part of it and then they just gave up. Of course, they weren't declared the winner. Verse fourteen. We must hold steadfast. Until the end. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 58 along with that. He says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know as your labor in the Lord, he says, is not in vain. It's not in vain. It's not for naught. But he says, be steadfast, unmovable. Now, verse 15. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. You see, they hardened their hearts, didn't they? Now, 
Verse 15, I think, is really an emphasis of verse 7 and 8. He's going back to that ideal. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation and the day of temptation in the wilderness. When we talk about the Israelites and their wandering in the wilderness, it's real common for us to go to the time before they were even uh, released or delivered out of Egypt. And we study Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh had a hard heart. And we talk about Pharaoh's heart be hard. Why did he allow his heart to be hard? And why did he do all this? Well, it wasn't just Pharaoh. Once they got released, they got in the wilderness. Their heart was hardened as well. But he's telling them in verse 15, don't let your heart be hardened like theirs were. For some, because, verse 16, some when they heard did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Who, who grieved God for 40 years? Who was it? Was it not them that had sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Carcass, simply their body there lay in the wilderness dead. They fell in the wilderness. They grieved God. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Verse 19. Again, the, the thrust of chapter 3 is they were released from their Egyptian bondage. They didn't receive the rest, those who fell because of their unbelief. We've been released from our bondage of sin. That's no guarantee we'll reach the, uh, the rest unless we stay faithful as well. There's something in verse 18 and 19, though, you don't want to overlook. Uh, I don't know how many of you read from the English Standard Version. And I don't know how many, I don't really know what the New King James says, how it translates this. Um, I know I'm reading from the King James tonight, to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. If you're reading this from the uh, ESV, but particularly if you read this from the American Standard Version of 1901, which is an excellent translation, it will say, but to them that were disobedient, instead of believed not. And then in verse 19, it says, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now the ESV and the American Standard of 1901, both in verse 19, will say unbelief. But in verse 18, the ESV and the American Standard of 1901 will say disobedient instead of believes not. That's not a bad translation. In fact, it's a very good translation of this verse. And it brings out the idea that uh, oftentimes obedience and belief are used in the Bible interchangeably. See? You, that's no, I mean, the Bible tells us what, what happens if you have a belief but no obedience. Well, then you've got a dead faith, James says, and that can't save anybody. The, the ideal here again in verse 18 and 19, belief and obedience go hand in hand. They're parallel. And that's why they're translated this way even. It's just simply saying one goes with the other. You can't really have one without the other. Uh, if you believe, you're going to obey. Now think about this. Belief is accompanied by actions. If I believe something and there's no resulting action, do I really believe it? Something to ponder. If, if I believe the Bible tells me that you know, the Bible teaches where to, do, where to help people in need. But I don't do it. 
Do I really believe it? I mean, if the Bible tells me to, to, that the church is to assist the widows and orphans and others, and, and I don't do that, I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm trying to make a point here that obedience and, and, and belief go hand in hand. If, if I believe the Bible says that, but then I don't do it, do I really believe it? See, if I, if I believe, well, you know, the Bible says people who are not Christians are lost to spend eternity in hell. I believe that. But if I don't do anything about it, do I really believe it? Do I really believe it? Or do I believe it and just don't care? Which is a real problem for myself, if that were the case. Uh, So verse 18 and 19, and again, you really, really see this, I think, if you're reading. Again, I don't know what the New King James Version says, but again, if you're reading from the English Standard Version, or the, the American Standard of 1901, it really brings out the point that belief and obedience go hand in hand, and you can't separate them. You just can't separate one from the other. King James says believe not to. Uh, King, uh, King James said, oh, yeah, or the New King James? The New King James says those who did not obey. Okay, so the New King James as well says those who did not obey. Okay, so King James might be the only one that uses unbelief in both places. I don't know. Uh, anyway, I think that's a point worth mentioning. Is that belief and obedience go hand in hand. You, you really can't separate the two. Um, I'm looking through my notes here to see if I've covered everything I wanted to cover tonight. I think I have. Belief requires action. Belief requires action. Exactly. They go hand in hand. If you really believe something, you will act on it, will you not? And that's a lot of what we read in James. You know, if, if it's not accompanied by action, by, uh, by some kind of works, then it's a dead faith. And a lot of people misunderstand James because they say we're not saved by works of merit and we don't deserve us. I know that. I've never, I've never heard a preacher in the church say we deserve heaven. Have you? I've never heard a preacher say that. But oftentimes, people say, well, we, you know, in the new in the New Testament church here, y'all, you know, y'all believe that uh, you work your way to heaven and those kind of things. Well, no, we'll we'll never earn heaven or deserve heaven. But you're not going to be in heaven without obedience either. That's just what the Bible teaches. But um, let us therefore fear, chapter 4 and verse uh, 1, lest a promise being left us of entering to his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Again, eternal security is a false doctrine. The rest he's talking about, it's like the physical rest of entering into the promised land is a type of rest with the antitype for us being uh, the spiritual rest we'll see when we get to heaven, and that's what we're going to talk about more in chapter 4 with our next lesson.